Welcome to episode 17 of Refined by Fire podcast. Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle media production and brought to you by Elkhart Brass. I'm Stephen Tyler, the host, and I'm joined with some help here today. Say hello. Hi. This is my eight-year-old son. What's your name, dude? Knox. Knox. Knox is learning how to edit podcasts today, a little bit of a take your son to work. <laughs> Anything you want to tell the fine people? No. Oh. No? You're good? Okay. Okay, before we get into the meat of the podcast, uh, again, Elkhart Brass is the sponsor of this show. And coming up soon on July 8th, they are celebrating 7 eighths day, of course, 7 eighths being the smoothbore tip of America's choice. And I know that's a controversial little subject, uh, but it's my favorite, so I'm just going to claim it. Um, on 7-8, on July 8th, Elkar Brass is celebrating by giving away four registrations to some of the Pensacola uh, County Fire Tactics conferences, two passes to Water on the Fire, and two passes to High Rise Operations Conference, a.k.a. HROC. So if you go to the Elkhart Brass Facebook page, you can find the link to sign up for that free giveaway. Also, if you go to Elkhart Brass's Amazon storefront, they've got some uh, limited edition 7-8 day swag that you can land, some really cool vintage-looking merch uh, that I would encourage you to check out. So once again, thanks to our friends at Elkhart. Okay, so today for episode 17, it is The Roof Pervs Part 2. Uh, we decided to get the band back together and do another uh, building construction related podcast. Once again, this will be a joint venture between this podcast and James's The Built Environment, which can be found on Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio. Uh, had a good time. This is really thick with a lot of information, um, but it's always fun. Uh, the four of us, uh, you know, we, we actually enjoy hanging out together. Uh, so we had a lot of fun talking building construction and answering your questions. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Please reach out, uh, like the fake, uh, excuse me, like the roof perv on Facebook or Instagram or both. And uh, if there's something you would like to see from us or questions you have or uh, cool examples of building construction, please send it our way. So without any further interruption, here is the roof pervs part two. All right, so here we go with the roof perv podcast take two. This is a joint presentation between James Johnson's The Built Environment and my Refined by Fire podcast uh, will be posted jointly. And uh, once again, I'm here with Rob Fisher from the Pacific Northwest. Robbie, say hello. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. I'm here with Will Knight from the Deep South. Will, say what's up. Hey, hey what's up? And James Johnson from the Great White North. James, say hello. Howdy, eh? And I'm Stephen uh, here doing another another Roof Perv podcast. Collectively, we run a Facebook page called The Roof Perv because we are nerds and we really like building construction and roof systems. If you want to get the history on that or listen to the first episode, you can go back um, on either Refined by Fire or way, way back through the Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio archives to find those episodes. We are going to do a little question and answer today on the Rough Perv. So, uh, what should we start with, guys? Did anything uh, jump off that page on the Q and A? 
I can delete any awkward silences. <laughs> well, I want I want to get to the I want to get to one of the questions because I have no clue, and uh, this is going to be going straight at James. I think has to do with the smoke and the smoke drafting and um, that to me, and we see it a lot interior, and I have no clue. And I know how to to deal with it when I'm up on the roof, but and a roof. I'm sorry, just before before uh, William starts correcting <laughs> me. But I, I don't know anything about the code when it comes to that, and I was just wondering maybe where James is at uh, with the code on on the uh, the drafting. Yeah. So there's. I was. So hold on. I'm just going to read the actual question, and then mm-hmm. James, I want to hear what you have to say. I think this was definitely up your alley. So this came from uh, my guy, my mentor, Ben Rosenbaum, and uh, it was this question has been was instigated from a vertical vent operation that they had maybe a year and a half ago. So the question is, what's the code requirement for draft stopping? When and why and where and how? And what are the signs from the street that we should or could anticipate the presence and location of draft stops? And then whether or not that's different for multifamily and commercial. Steve, do you know the the story from where it originated from? Because the reason why I ask is um, sometimes there's confusion between fire blocking and draft stopping. And just kind of want to make sure that um, I was on the same page with understanding the why behind the question. Sure. I'll do my best. Uh, I wasn't there. But uh, as I understand it, this was a, a, a commercial joint with a peaked roof. So not a flat roof, um, but multi- multiple commercial occupancies, um, office spaces. Um, our truck went to the roof on this call. And uh, the captain was sounding, sounding, sounding. Everything was good. And then just like like fell off a cliff. His He, he sounded once. It was great. He sounded again a couple feet later. And his, and his hook goes right through the roof. So it was like, that's, that's really strange to get no difference in, in resonance and rebound and just have it just fall off a cliff like that. So, you know, he steps back, gives the Sawyer the sign to cut. They cut whatever they, they they do the roof up and they they come back down he has um also has some video from a tick so he ticks it at the same time and and there's like this hard line of good and bad from the tick so th- they go back back up on the roof either after the the fire was mopped up or the next day i don't remember and and find that there's a there's an interior draft stop I don't remember if it was OSB or, or gypsum board, but there was an there was a, a draft stop inside the attic space, the void space there. So Stephen, I'm Stephen, I'm assuming when he's saying that it didn't go all the way down from from the roof roof all the way to the 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 actual rafter, it's the bottom of the rafters, right? Right. Well, it didn't protrude through the roof decking. Right, it was just it was just inside the void space, and it, uh, again, it was either OSB or or sheetrock. It was just partitioning sections of that void. Okay, so um, the, there's a couple different things that go along with that. So, based in the code, there's there's fire blocking, and there's draft stopping, and then there's actual like a firewall, like a a fire full fire separation. And I, I think that's kind of what more they're asking about because draft stopping is just used to mostly for the spread of smoke. And it's just, um, it's where we're, we're using like fire caulking or some kind of a caulking material. Um, as far as uh, when it's required, um, 
do we have to add draft stopping in whenever you have a like a large area of more than a thousand square feet or in attic spaces or void spaces <clears throat> excuse me when it's over three thousand square feet of space you need that draft stopping so okay i think more what they're asking about is more like the fire separation is that do you think that's what like the well give me so, so give me the the difference between what is fire separation and draft stopping so what uh draft stopping is is just like to stop to stop the draft or else to stop air movement that'll circulate smoke essentially and, and typically what materials are used Oh, it could be anything like uh, it could be plywood. It could be one layer of half inch drywall um, and then using caulking to actually like make it airtight. So <clears throat> I think what they're more asking about is like a fire separation between between um, a joint, like a firewall, essentially between adjoining occupancies. And um, we would always see that in our, if you look at a typical strip mall, like it's very clear where you can see like you have a firewall parapet that'll extend past the roof line. It's pretty clear um, to see. But in a lot of the, if you get into like a multifamily wood frame, typically what we see is just the truss spaces will be um, double drywall to like two layers of five eighths actually on the actually on the um, one side of the truss. And then you'll have the um, the party wall or the wall between will extend up to the bottom side of that truss. And then that'll be your fire separation. Okay. If that makes sense. It does. Hey James, does, does that we go see all that the way? a lot too. Go ahead, William. I'm uh, sorry. We, we see that in, in <clears throat> homes, in apartments, uh, some. And then we also see it heavily in um, – Extended stay motels with pitched roofs, which most of our extended stays have uh, real shallow pitched roofs on them. And they'll have uh, a division, a wall that goes all the way to the underside of the roof decking. And we'll have um, drywall on both sides, usually, uh, uh, I guess, what would normally be a, a one-hour rating between the two layers. But it's it's a layer on each side, not doubled up. That, that seems to work pretty well for an actual fire division. Uh, where I've seen it. And then also on townhomes, you'll have, James, you, you, you could tell me the code section, but on townhomes and stuff where they require a fire division between uh, occupancies or two, two different units, uh, they'll actually overlay either a, um, a fire-resistive OSB or um, some sort of uh, dens glass or um, a heavier, uh, like one-hour rated uh, OSB. That overlaps both sides by a certain distance, and I, what is it like a two foot offset on each side, something like that? On the on the wall, is that what you're talking? It's it'll be above. It'll it'll actually sit on top where the decking would normally lay on top of uh, the truss or the wall. It'll actually overlap both sides of so into the left and the right townhome on each side of that wall. And are you talking on a flat roof? Uh, pitched. This is all I've ever seen it on. We don't okay. have too many new flat roofs. Uh, for townhomes and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I can't p uh, picture exactly what you're describing. Well, if if anything, I I think this just goes to show that you know Williams down south, and I'm in the Pacific Northwest, kind of closer. Well, I'm much closer to James than than William is, but you know across the nation, there's going to be a lot of different types of construction, and um, this kind of goes to our point where we are saying we trying to speak one common language. 
um, like how we talk about bowstring or arch truss and all these other different things, it, it can be very difficult to, to answer <clears throat> these questions across the nation because it can be a little bit different. And w- w- the way that I'm seeing this, or at least um, the pitch roof, I think, is, is a key here because we have a number of larger buildings, be it that they're multifamily residential or they could be like um, a commercial where it is separated in the the attic space or the void space, whatever you want to call it. It is separated by um, fireproofing of some sort, rating. And I think that's probably, um, you know, not having been on the roof with, um, with uh, Rosenbaum and his crew, I think that's probably the case. Whereas what I was thinking where this was stemming from was the, the draft stopping which is what we see in our large big box store like uh, Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, where you look up and there is no, there isn't a, um, a void space that you can see obviously. And you're seeing a 10 foot, eight foot piece coming from the ceiling down so that it, it holds everything in, which is what James is talking about. It holds the smoke in certain zones. And, and the way that I understood it, is that that was so that it, it keeps the sprinkler system and keeps the air movement, but the sprinkler system now can define a certain area so that when there is heat in that area, it doesn't allow it to to disperse quickly. It allows for it to concentrate in that certain zone so that the sprinkler system can go off and extinguish or not be overwhelmed by the fire. Um, Stephen just uh – sent us a picture overhead view of the actual building that we were talking about. And what we have is a, I'd say like a medium size um, hip roof. And with uh, one of the questions that was asked is how to identify a lot of times with the the fire separation in these spaces, um, it's based on an an area. So for example, I lived in a town home um, where our, the fire separation was not actually above our individual units. So I could go into the attic space of my place and I could actually go three quarters into the space above my neighbor. And then that's where the firewall separation was because it's based on area, not based on lining up with the occupancy. So unfortunately, when you have a space like that, it'd be next to impossible to to find where that would be from the roof anyways. Okay. So that's, that's not a, a super helpful question but it is a helpful question just in the fact that like it's not something you're going to be able to identify from the ground and correct me if i'm wrong but maybe it's one more reason why people need to potentially be on a roof to figure out what's going on inside a building well it's actually a really good point because if those guys well they obviously found the um the change by their using their sounding and there's no way you would have any idea from you know, standing in the street or even from the inside of the structure until you start pulling some serious ceiling. Um, but that is a really good point. All right. Anything else on draft stopping, fireproofing, firewalls? From yeah, the I, I just looked it up because I'm not smart like James. Um, and it's in places where firewalls are required, uh, but they don't want to build a parapet above. They can actually... Um, remove the parapet, but they have to use fire resistant OSB or protect the underside of the OSB decking with some sort of fire resistance, uh, in four feet on each side of the firewall. So that's what I don't know. I see what you're saying now. They straddle the firewall with a piece of, with a four by eight sheet of OSB all the way up it and back over to the other side. So 
Um, if you if you have a, you'll basically have a row of that uh, fire retardant OSB, or you'll have the addition of a drywall type product, a gypsum product on the underside of it to protect the OSB four feet in each direction off of that wall. I understand what you're saying now. Yeah. Yeah, I probably described it poorly. Okay, so we'll move on. Next question is from uh, another Idaho guy, John Metz. What's good your, dude. Very good dude. What's your vent plan when you encounter roof-mounted solar panels? Well, I can uh, I can kind of speak to this a little bit. I have not done any um, roof roof work with solar panels on the roof, but we did have um, last year. We had a class. In a neighboring department, they brought out um, some experts in solar panel, and we got this. Basically, it was for the fire service. It was designed for the fire service. I wish I could remember the name of the group. Um, I'm sure if you did a, a Google search, you could find the same group, but it was on a, um, a grant. They came out. They talked about solar panels. They talked about the dangers of solar panels. And, um, they're, they're dangerous. I mean, first of all, it, if you go up there and you do anything with the solar panel, expect that you're going to get hit with a bolt of lightning for the most part. But what came of it is, um, panels are typically on one side of the roof, uh, because they're, they're following the sun. So you can work on the opposite side of the roof. If we're talking about a pitched roof, that's uh, you know, gable style, um, or even hip, but, um, but you can work the opposite side. You just want to stay away from the wiring and stay away from the panels itself. Um, there was in the class, they talked about how it's not just the, the ventilation operation. That's a concern. It's the panels are bringing electricity into the building that you cannot control or potentially cannot control. And, uh, there's cutoffs that you can, you could locate, um, where the, where the panel power is coming into the main power of the building, um, those are all different depending on where you're at. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. Um, but as for the operations, they, they definitely said stay away from them. Do not try to do anything with them and, uh, and work around them that, uh, depending on how big the roof is, uh, would allow for you to do operations. And, you know, as much as, uh, I like going to the roof or at least when I was on the ladder truck, you know, those, this type of, uh, change in, in our construction is, uh, is such that we probably wouldn't be doing much for roof operate operations. And, and, and that means we're limited in what we can do up there. And, and if the, if it, it is what it is. So, um, there's no sense of trying to go up there and doing anything that's going to cause any, uh, danger to ourselves. Yeah. I, I, the big thing about the, uh, the photovoltaics or the solar stuff is that it's so hard to turn off and to be sure that all the, make sure that all the power has been, um, leached or out of the system. Uh, and there's lots of goofy stuff out there, like foams that you can spray on it that are supposed to, you know, take away the, the ability for the sunlight to energize them. And I don't know. It's one of those things that kind of, I'm a little bit leery of cause I, know just enough about electricity to get myself into trouble um i definitely but but well the one good point like you said is they're most of the time when you see them they're facing one direction so there might be that that space but you're definitely you're definitely increasing kind of that risk profile by doing it when there's any of that stuff up on the roof and we're starting to see more of them uh the technology has improved such that um, that they're getting a little bit smaller. They can uh, handle more voltage. 
Um, so we're going to, I, I, I would say probably by the end of my career and, and, uh, there's probably going to be, you know, the majority of houses cause it's, it's free electricity. Um, I would, I would venture to say the majority of the newer houses are going to be built are going to have some type of solar, um, device on them to, um, to bring in some type of electricity that would augment something within, within the structure. But personally, I, you know, after going through the class, I, I, I learned how dangerous it, would, it, dangerous it would be for us to try to destroy them or do something so we could vent in that area. But it seems like it's way more dangerous for the crews that are working inside the building if we cannot control them. And, and they did talk about flowing foam on top of them. They have, you know, like the typical fire service are designing these tarps that are the size of them that you lay over the top of them to, to cut the electricity. Um, it, there was no no set way that was going to be 100 percent perfect. They just said, basically, just expect that there's going to be electricity still in the house. I was going to ask you guys if y'all had seen any of the uh, uh, the alternative photovoltaic uh, roof materials. So not just your typical giant panels, but also stuff that's designed to look like a roof. So you've got Tesla with the, the tiles. Um, there's been a couple companies that have tried to roll out a barrel tile or an S tile. Uh, that hasn't really come to fruition. Everything that I've ever seen has kind of petered out back in 2012 in that area. Uh, but I didn't know if you guys had seen anything, especially being up there in the, the more technologically savvy area of the, the U.S. and Canada. I've seen them at, at construction trade shows, um, and I've actually got to you know hold them and look at them, but I've never seen them in actual application yet. Um, but I know they have some of that stuff in the Bay Area where people are actually using like the Tesla tiles or or those kind of things. But I I think it's pretty small, the amount of uh, people that are actually using them. So maybe the way you identify it is when you pull up to the house and it has a huge gate and it requires your Opticom to get through the gate and there's a security <laughs> guard there and the security <laughs> guard has to check your, your apparatus before you drive in, then they might have that Tesla, that Tesla roof material. It's not going to be on a standard home. Not yet. <laughs> okay so I, I want to move away from tactics and back toward construction for a little bit we I think we, we kind of covered this in the last episode but but let's let's go through it uh, once more or with with focus this question came from the up Valley North Enders on Instagram and the question is if you had to give initial foundation building construction training to a new firefighter what information would be most important in order? I can start off with that one. Um, my approach to that has changed a little bit over the last few years teaching building construction. And um, something that more and more I've realized the importance of is um, I typically start out um, when I'm teaching classes. I start out by going and a lot of people say it's a, it's really nerdy, but I get into the loads and forces and understanding load path and how, you know, how gravity works and how load transfers through a building. And, um, and I think it's one of those things that you have to really explain the why behind it. Cause as soon as you start going into failure of different materials or different collapse patterns or things like that, um, it all ties back to understanding, 
you know, the way that load is transferred through different building materials. So that's something that I start out all my classes with. Um, and I was kind of leery to do it at the beginning, uh, but I've just really kind of gone full board with it now that, that it's something that I feel is really important. So that's always my first step is understanding that because you can tell people, you know, you can talk about glue lamp beams all day long and you can, you know, help or tell people to identify different construction types, but if they don't understand um, the way that load transfers through those different materials, then it's, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really help them out a whole lot. I, I second James. Uh, I, I don't usually have a classroom setting to do it in, but when we get a rookie or we have somebody filling in who's uh, fairly new and didn't come from a construction background, uh, I usually stop at something every now and then and, and take a look around at something that's being built. And when we do that, a lot of my focus is on how everything that's in there carries the load because that's that's really what building construction is, is, is the engineering solution to carrying whatever load that, that building is going to going to hold so it may be something as simple as pointing out that uh, a purlin or a purlin brace or something is carrying this load back to the wall which then transfers it down into the the foundation or whatever and that that may be the big win for that that one particular building or apartment or house that we go in is getting them to understand that this particular little thing right here is carrying all that load down to this one final point uh and i so i agree with james Mr. Fisher, anything to add? No, I don't think I would add anything because I'm I wasn't in the uh, trades field, so I don't know much about construction. I just um, um, my focus has always been more from the roof side of things, and and when we're on top of it and understanding well, what type of roof we're on. Um, not that this is going to help the discussion, but one of the things that I find that's frustrating in all my time, you know, in classes is that we spend a lot of time talking about ordinary and heavy timber construction. And uh, I can't, you know, probably in my first 10 years, I never even saw an ordinary type constructed building or a heavy timber building. And we seem to be stuck in this old system of type one through five with Alaska having a type six construction, which is just made out of anything. Um, but uh, I think the focus is wherever you work, you should understand the construction that's that's in your area. And that um, if I was taking uh, new firefighters out, I would want them to understand being that in our community where, where I work and, and community where you work too, Stephen, is like it's mostly newer construction. And being able to identify that that building right there might look like the ordinary building but it's fake it's not it's a lightweight constructed building and here are the reasons why so um i don't know if that helps into the conversation but that's that's something that seems to be frustrating for me when i when i'm looking at building construction in addition to the fact that most of us don't even know how to build shit i think one of the one of the pet peeves or things that drives me crazy too is when you look at a lot of the building construction programs or even just the typical academy ones. It's, we do we teach them the five types of construction. We teach them a little bit about some of the materials like steel, concrete, wood, and then we show all the worst case scenarios like the line of duty deaths that have happened based on all of these things. So it's like oh we're going to talk about wood frame and then we're going to show you the worst case scenario where people died from it. Where it's like, um, it's something I talk about in my facts not fear class is like, I will, and and Aaron Fields talks about it with his kind of modality to training. It's like you have to look at the, um, 
at the what's going to happen over what could happen. And that's kind of one of my things that drives me crazy is, you know, we'll talk about a certain construction type and then we'll look at the worst case scenario and never talk about what's the predictable way, what how it's going to fail or how it's going to react to fire conditions most of the time. Well, that, that, it didn't help that several editions of Brannigan's are kind of written in that style, the doom and gloom and, and everything's going to fall and kill you. It's got, it's just packed with that. It's less about how it's built and how it comes apart. And it's, it's more about the fact that it's going to come apart. And so people are set up from the beginning to think that things are going to fall down on them. And that just kind of sets the stage for a, a more negative view of building construction uh, where everything is built by the lowest bidder, as firemen killers, and all the myths and stuff that end up getting built on top of that. That, fa- that foundation is set early in some building construction uh, books, programs, things like that. And that's, I think, what the four of us all kind of work against a little bit is bringing back the understanding uh, so that you're less fearful of it. Yeah, and I'll add to that. For many, many years, we would have ladder companies that newer company officers have gone through some type of training and they're they're positioning the ladder truck at the corner of the building because they're fearful for a collapse. And I said, it is it is a three story wood frame building. You know that the walls don't collapse out like what you were, you know, where it's 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 not unreinforced masonry. So it's not going to it's not going to come out and dump onto you. And it's and it's not a concrete tilt up uh, building. So you're not going to have a slab drop on you. You're worried about building collapse in a three-story wood frame building that's on fire that, you know, it may be showing fire from a couple windows. That's not typically the case. But because of how we learned, we've created um, from from a truck truck company standpoint, hey, we want to be at the strongest point of the building and we want to be out of the collapse zones. And we apply that to every building. And that is just not the case. We shouldn't We shouldn't be worrying about that on every single building. But again, when you look at like Brannigan, as you're saying, William, or we're looking at the old type of um, types of construction that we learned in the old IFSTA manuals, it, it really it basically it covers it almost like it's it's every single building you should be doing this. And that's just not the case. So what do you guys just question for the group here? Do you guys think there should be um, separate tiers for kind of the understanding of building construction or the instruction of it? Like uh, I was telling, I was telling the group before we started recording here that I recently taught a class, um, and as soon as I started teaching it, I realized that the the specific class I was teaching was that I wasn't in the right, um, it wasn't the right audience for for what I was teaching. So you guys think that like some of the stuff that we talk about um, should be geared towards a certain level or experience level? In some ways? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I just came from working in an academy and there's no way that I could have attempted, there's no intelligent way that I could have attempted to teach them everything I've learned about building construction or put them in touch with everyone that I know who knows much more than me about building construction. Um, that's, that's not a useful way you know, to begin their career because they can't retain all that information. And there's a lack of context until they've been out 
on the line and seen some fires and have have put multiple skills you know in, in sequence uh with one another like like there's just a lack of context for a lot of the things that we get deep into um so, so you can't take a new person or a veteran who's worked in a specific type of of uh of arena and then and then all of a sudden try to blow their minds with 100 percent of the knowledge um on on different building systems um so there, it, there does have to be just like in um in physical training there does have to be a, a linear progression of of our skills generally in firefighting but certainly in our building construction knowledge i think so that begs the question where do you draw the divisions between uh concepts and and things that you would teach uh the different levels like what would be your beginner level what would what would that encompass and then intermediate and advanced level building construction how, how do you divide that up I can speak to like a very basic uh, sort of sort of model that, that I was that trying to use, which was to introduce to basic terminology, uh, to to introduce to uh, the different types of buildings, but then also to try to create some context by physically walking these buildings. So part so we teach Brannigans in my area. Um, but a half day is devoted. And in fact, for us, it was about six hours was devoted to looking at buildings. So we look at every type of building that we can try to get, you know, try to get a full spectrum. Sometimes that's more difficult than others. Um, but, but take them through and show them the different types of buildings, try to create some context for some of these terms, some of these tactics that we've talked about. So I guess then what becomes uh, what becomes your intermediate and what what's con- what would you consider advanced building construction? I'm, I'm I guess I have a hard time. I could definitely see that building the foundation for your your recruits and people that did come from trades and things like that. But then where do you go from there? What what would you consider advanced building construction? Because to me it all kind of falls into that same. Once you've got the foundation, it's all the same level to me as far as level of understanding we're not engineers so we're not getting into uh math and you don't need an advanced level degree to understand most of the building construction concepts so is there really a division any further than that just basic and a little more than basic well i i think for me it's it comes down to where you start putting the building construction knowledge with the tactic side of it like i'm not going to take a new firefighter and, and this is where I kind of struggle, but I don't want to take a new firefighter and tell them, you know, you don't, there's not a whole lot to worry about when you're venting a lightweight truss roof. As long as you're sounding and all this, you know, going through the steps, you're relatively safe. Um, that's something that some of those concepts where you're, it's hard to teach somebody who's like, like Stephen was saying, with someone with no contact, someone who's never been up on a roof or anything. So like, I'm, I'm, you know, when we talk about in the fire service sometimes where it's like teaching to the lowest level or the, you know, the lowest common denominator, which is something I don't like. I don't like that concept of it, but at some points it's like, I don't know if it makes sense, but I just, sometimes I worry that some things you say with people don't have the right, um, don't have the right background knowledge to it, like they don't have the base level of knowledge, then they could get themselves into trouble. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I totally see what you're saying, James, because if we, if we just 
from my my little perspective of of being on the on the ladder, if I take a brand new recruit and we tell them the the different types of construction, and then and like one of my key points is we are in a in my area we are in lightweight constructed area, so I want you to be able to understand what lightweight is. And then I take them to the roof and I say, okay, here's a pitch roof. Where are the strongest points? They're on the walls. They're in the valley, and I teach them those that element of it, and they already know the skill set. So that's just at the basic level. Then the next level being the novice level would be uh, understanding the various components of the construction. And then I think if we want to call it the expert level is that we'd go to the next level. And that would be being able to apply tactics to the different types of construction and that that should be at the level of company officer, battalion uh, or commander of some sort where they're looking at a building and going, okay. These are the standard tactics that will be successful in these types of buildings, and these tactics will not be successful. And that that's the way that I would break it up because I, I agree with William. There's just not a way that, that we should be spending and becoming engineers ourselves. That's just not going to happen. And being able to calculate loads of, you know, how long can this, um, this cantilevered uh, area be hanging over? It doesn't matter. I like that. Yeah, I would say I, I think the intermediate – uh, the intermediate setting is is much like James said, the, the convergence of tactics and construction for those bread and butter fires or, or in this case, the bread and butter building construction that you have. So so what, what Rob just said there on lightweight, the intermediate setting for his people is understanding absolutely all the different ways that, that tactics and, and construction converge on lightweight construction. Expert level now is understanding that other 10%, those couple of panelized roofs, those couple of ordinary or, or whatever it is in your particular area, it's that 10% that you're you know, very unlikely to see but could see when you now have the ability to know how tactics and construction converge on those. Like That to me is expert level. So is everybody in agreement that William's going to write the first roof perv construction uh tactics or construction book for the fire service yeah that's your <laughs> curriculum will no we 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 are we are not in agreement on that <laughs> you I are object. outvoted in a super majority though uh, all right so we'll move on to that staying with some some specific questions on on building construction and moving into something that is very rare for for some folks and absolute bread and butter for others is talking about panelized roofs. So the question was, how do you identify a panelized roof from the exterior? But first, before we answer that, uh, I want a definition from you guys on what exactly a panelized roof is. I'll take that. Um, pan- <laughs> the, the one guy who doesn't have panelized roofs. But for me, I think that's the reason that I took this is because we don't have them. So I've had to learn from other people and I've had to learn from several different areas of the country what panelized is. And it, it, it nobody ever explained it. Out of everybody that ever taught me, everybody said this is panelized and they described the members and the materials and the sizes. But panelization is a construction method. It is not a material. It is not an orientation of material. It's the fact that you are building it somewhere else and then assembling it at the job site or in the air at the job site or something like you're 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 building a panel of wall or floor or roof and then lifting it into place 
And so it speeds things up because you can you can uh, streamline the assembly process ahead of time and spend less time at the actual job site putting things together. And maybe you need less hands. Maybe you don't even need a team of people at the site uh, to do it. But that's what panelization is. Um, we've made some posts on it before because they can panelize a, a heavy timber log home and they can panelize the roof of a million square foot warehouse and they are very different panelized structures so i just want to throw that out there before the guys from the pacific northwest talk about panelized i'll step back now the one thing i just want to say to that though is i think when people talk panelized roofs they're speaking about a very specific method and arrangement of the materials um for example i built a i built a house and we had a nail laminated roof that was flown in panelized i would never want to call that a panelized roof and have guys up there because it's it, although the method it was panelized and brought in when guys are going up to the roof to do their stuff um i think overall i think panelized roof is a is a system of purlins sub purlins or rafters and main beams i think for the majority of the fire service that's we are those that deal with panelized roof think the exact same thing when they say that terminology is what would you guys agree with that or i agree I, with that that's how i learned it I, I agree with both of you. And I, uh, the reason why I'm sitting here just waiting is like, this is like having that, that argument or that debate over, is it a bowstring? Is it an arch? Uh, God panelizes. I agree with you, William panelizes is, is the way originally it was the way that it was being done in sections and it was being put into place, which is why the Perlin and the, and the rafters they're in sections and they can be dropped into place real easily. But I think what has happened, and this kind of goes to that point of the bowstring debate and the arch trust debate, is I think what's happened is over a period of time, especially on the West Coast and where we're at, it has be it's become a type of construction where when we're talking amongst firefighters, you say panelize and everybody, bam, has that that picture in their mind that I've got a beam, a purlin that's spaced off eight feet with rafters in between there. And then we've got, you know, some type of decking on top of it. And so it's kind of changing the fire service or changing the terminology uh, down the road. So it, it's just kind of ironic that that's what we're talking about. And that's what we always battle over. Okay. So um, go into the standard bread and butter panelized construction for the guys that are east of the Mississippi that have not seen it, don't have it, things like that. Talk about the actual, the actual structural composition of that typical, you, you just kind of glossed over it, but actually go into what, what is it? How is it assembled? And, and what are the issues? Well, basically we start off with a, a beam that is probably supported um, from two walls. And if the beam's going to extend any long distance, it's going to have a column that's going to be supporting it somewhere in between the two walls. Uh, beam is uh, 36 inches or so, glue lamb. And those are going to be spaced between each other. So if we, if we think of a, a big square building in the alpha side, the front side of the building, uh, the beams are going to be running from alpha to Charlie. Those beams could be spaced as far as 40 feet away from one another. Okay, Off of those beams are purlins and those are uh four by ten typically they can actually they can be um um steel bar joists 
uh, construction as well. So um, at least in my area, we would call that a hybrid, uh, a hybrid style of, of panelized roof. But the purlin is another member that comes off the beam spaced out every eight feet. Uh, like I said, it can be a four by 10 uh, dimensional lumber. And, and that will span that up to 40 feet between the per, between the two beams. And then off the purlin is, is rafters, uh, two by six. Typically, um, I have seen them two by four in my area, but, um, two by six typically, and that's spaced off 24 on center. And then, um, then OSB, um, CDX plywood, whatever is laid on top of it. So your spacing now, it's a perfect, which is why what you were saying earlier that the, the construction is, it's, it's a panel that's built and then brought into place. That a four by eight sheet of of um, decking is put on top of it, and then there's your panel right there. Yeah, typically, typically the way that I've seen, uh, not in person, but the way that I've seen them built is the uh, purlin will be your main thing that's being lifted into the air and attached to the purlin is all of your rafters set 24 inches on center, typically eight feet long, with the decking already attached, and they basically are set up to overlap the top of the next purlin so that when they lift this big thing it's floating in the air with a crane or a, a forklift or whatever they lift it up and you've got one purlin a bunch of rafters running off of it and nothing on the other side and so it just drops right into place hooks to the previous purlin and um, is ready to go it's just a very quick way to assemble things yeah and and, and i've seen it being constructed in our area where they take two purlins with the um, with the four by eight sheet already nailed to them, they bring in that one section, they drop it in, and then they skip a section, and then they drop in another section of it, so that there's if you can uh, picture it as there's a, an open gap in between there, yeah. and then in that open gap, they just drop in two by sixes and just start sheeting it. So you know it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier uh, in on this topic is that yes, you're you're absolutely right that it was a form of construction. And not necessarily the type of construction, but the terminology has changed and it's now become a type of construction that we all identify with and we know what it looks like. So it's it's synonymous at this point. It Does it beg the need for differentiation between the two, between the construction material and a construction type? Or is that just kind of, is that being too picky? Do you think for fire service jargon, do you think we could just say panelized and people know what it is or do we need to be more specific well if we if we have such the issue with with bowstring and saying any any arch roof is a bowstring roof then i would say no we shouldn't allow for that to be the case in the fire service we should make sure that everybody understands that a beam with a purlin and and rafters is is a is a um this is what type of roof it is is it's a it's a flat roof that has these supporting members, which would go back to our conversation about understanding where forces are applied and why they are that way. Um, the other the other issue is like when when we went through the Quad County Truck Academy and a particular person that was instructing the academy always called those girders. And I, you know, I would have issue with it being called a girder. And I still haven't found how that defines the Perlin as being a girder in relation to when we were talking about this type of construction, but we should probably be able to uh, define the, the construction itself and, 
And um, I don't know. I'm just going off off. <laughs> I'm going I'm going rogue with this. Well, I can't it, stand that term girder. It does get uh, it does get a little bit muddy, though, because if you look at um, typical steel roof construction that we have in our, um, say, our type two or our commercial occupancies here, uh, we say we have a Walmart. What you're going to have is you're going to have a main beam, which based on building code is called a girder. And then off of that, you would have the beams off of the girder. And then between the beams, you would have the joists. All that would be steel in this setting. So that's that's one of the hard things like with that, if you're if an engineer is designing that, it's going to be girder beam joist. But it's not in the panelized setting. And it's going to be all, um, you, you know, like open web steel joist for just a diff- differentiating size. Um, but that's going to be the terminology with it. So it's one of those things that like panelized roof is very specific with calling it beam uh pearl and rafter and that so that's so okay so i i got i got a question about panelized um and this goes to a a question sort of a question that we got uh for the group uh the question that they asked was how do you identify it from the outside um but my question is if you're looking up at it like doing your pre-plans and you see what you think is panelized well, that doesn't mean it was assembled in a panelized fashion. Does that matter at all? Because you can build anything with beams, uh, purlins, rafters, and and it all looks the same from the underside. Does does that matter? From a strength like uh, perspective, I would say no. The if panelization build- of it is just for ease of construction. Okay. If you build a wall, William, if you build a wall in a vertical standpoint or if you build it on the ground and tilt it up it's still a wall right i mean that's kind of what i'm getting at is is what do we call things how do we identify things and does it does it matter in some cases or are we just am i just being too picky about some stuff yes james is shaking his head yes i'm being too picky. <laughs> so james just because I, this has become a, a point of discussion before with defining the purlin itself is is purlin a a construction term is for building construction or you know because the the idea that we call it a girder it doesn't meet it doesn't meet what a girder really 100 percent of what a girder is and um so what 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 is a purlin it's just Go ahead. I'll let you talk about it. So I'll. So there's different. Re, there's different terminology for purlin based on what kind of construction it is. So I'll speak from what I'm the most used to as a carpenter. What a purlin was is typically we, if we had a raftered roof, like a conventionally framed roof, we would have the rafters that would run from the bearing wall up to the ridge, and then a purlin. Uh, or sorry, a purlin would be perpendicular to that. And then there would be um, so the, what the, what the purpose of it is to provide support for those rafters because it's such a long span. So a lot of times that purlin would run perpendicular to the rafter, and then there would be struts that would come down to a bearing wall to provide support for it. And that's the traditional way of a purlin. Like if you're looking any of the old, you know, 1950s, 1960s framing manuals, anything like that. So in my my uh, terminology in my brain, a purlin always runs perpendicular to rafters. That's just how I've always had it in my head. So when you look at a panelized roof, it's that's the case, right? The purlin is perpendicular to the. Um, and if you look at a conventionally framed roof and a panelized roof, what the purlin is doing is slightly different, um, but it's still supporting the rafter in some way. So, 
Uh, but I know in steel construction, uh, particularly when you have like the Butler buildings or any of that kind of prefab steel, I know that purlin is used in a in a different terminology as, um, from what we would in wood construction. And that that kills me. That's one of the things that I would like to fix about the fire service is that we keep using borrowed terms from individual industries and even within the construction industry as a whole, different trades have their own jargon for it. And we are trying to borrow jargon from several different trades and mash them together into our trade and it doesn't work. We need one jargon that works for us, whether it works for anybody else in any other trade. Uh, we don't have to talk to them in that jargon. We need to talk to each other. So we got to decide as a fire service, what are we going to call that thing that supports beams and the thing that supports purlins and the thing that supports rafters? What are we going to call each of those things? And can we do it in a more universal way so that it's not situational based on whether it's steel construction or flat roof or pitched roof or whatever? That's that's my hope is that we can work toward that. You're going to well, solve that in your curriculum. <laughs> well, you're in your in your nirvana or your utopia of of language and jargon. It's it's not possible because you know we're such a big nation or just just yeah just a nation. You know, is it soda pop or is it is it or is it pop or is it soda? You know, and and depending on where you're, it, it's so grubby. Yeah, it's Coke. But uh, it's going to be difficult to make that change, and and uh, I think which. You know, we could go back to the last conversation and we say, well, if you're if you're a novice or expert in building construction in the fire service, you're going to know the different slang or the different jargon for things. And you're going to be able to break things down just as James did and say, hey, this is what a Perlin does. And we call it a Perlin because of this. So they know a little bit more of the history of it and and what its function is. Now, you go down to the the to the, the street level where we're at. And most guys are not going to know the difference of it. They're just going to go, it's just part of the construction. And shit, some will probably call it a beam, you know. And I think it's just really difficult that we're going to create a, a fire service that's that's going to have 100% jargon that everybody's going to be on the same page with, you know. But good luck. <laughs> But I think it's important that when we're talking about these things, like, Robbie, you brought up girder. Like, when you look at code stuff, a girder is a beam that carries the load from another beam. That's basically how it's defined. So if I look, if I go into my typical steel roof Walmart, my largest structural member running from one side to the other is going to be the girder. The beams that run off of that will be beams. And then in between the, you know, the 18 inch open web steel joists that go in between those beams are going to be the joists. So that's kind of, you know, like a girder is a beam that's carrying the load of another beam. Uh, but that's kind of where like defining it in a certain way helps understand it. Right. But if you, if someone doesn't understand a panelized roof and walks into a, tilts up building in Southern California and looks up and goes, Oh, there's the girder, there's the beam and there's the joist, <laughs> you know, cause that's the format that people would be used to by looking at it. Right. But when you get into the panelized, then we have our beam pearl and rafter. So same, same things doing the same function, just different terminology. So if a person, maybe that's, maybe that's the most important thing is just understanding the function by looking at it, being, being able to get to that point. Where if you have never seen that building or even that construction type before, you could walk into it and reasonably determine 
based on appearance uh, and how it's assembled, what each of those things does. Okay, so back to the original question, without walking inside of it, can it be identified? Inspection cut. Yeah, right. So I, like, you gotta yeah. be, my answer would be, you've gotta be on top or underneath to know. I would 100% agree. I have a picture that I took from the Sacramento area of two buildings that were built at the same time on just two different sides of the street. Uh, one was tilt up, one was a concrete masonry unit or CMU building. Uh, one was panelized and one was steel. And you look on the outside, there's no way you could tell which one was the panelized one, which one wasn't. So, um, yeah, in my like, I, I wouldn't have a good way to explain to somebody to see it unless you're underneath it or on top of it. And that's true for more than just panelized roofs. Uh, that's true for a lot of our territories where we have mixtures of stuff. Uh, very few parts of the area have completely homogenized uh, construction methods and materials and ages of their buildings. We've got things from different eras and different technologies. And so I, I actually have a neighborhood in, uh, in my county where the builder came in and built two houses next to each other. The same architect, same builder, same contractor, foreman, frame and crew. These two houses look very, very similar in appearance, and one of them is truss, and one of them is conventionally constructed roof. And when I asked the foreman why, he had no idea. He said that's the way the architect wanted it. And the only way you would know that is through either pre-plan or an inspection cut. Okay, so, I mean, I'm going to bang this drum, and and Battalion Chief Fisher, you can shoot me down once again if, if I'm correct, or incorrect, sorry, but... We can't often tell what's going on on a roof, what's going on with the building, unless we get on top of it. Brian Brush wrote a thing, I don't know, many years ago that said they're not flat roofs, they're hidden roofs. In order to find out what's going on on the roof or with the building, like a lot of times that requires people on the roof. Do we all agree with that tactic? Completely. Absolutely. Great. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, want, I do want to talk a little bit more about it because I think this is an important part, even though we are, I mean, we do call ourselves the roof pervs and we like talking with construction, but uh, we just did um, a tactics class for our officer development academy. And, and one of the videos we watched, um, San Bernardino, I think it's called the Seventh Street Fire or something. It's in Victorville. It's a, it's a arched roof that's on fire. And, um, do a YouTube search for it, San Bernardino Fire, 7th Street. Um, it's a vacant commercial building, and the roof operations are are great. The communication, because they in this video they play the communication of what's going on on the roof and um, uh, what's going on underneath. But the thing that we discuss, or the one that I, the thing that I try to push from the perspective of the truck, is that. The truck needs to go to the roof because they are the individuals that have the greatest perspective of what's going to go on above the crews that are in a zero visibility environment. And that um, we struggle with that. And and I think we're learning as a fire service, we're getting better. But we struggle with that because that is where the roof and the collapse is where it's gobbling up all of our firefighters and killing them. And we've, we've had lengthy discussions about this over period of time. And, uh, and that just isn't the case. So, um, this video, this particular video shows really good roof operations. It actually shows a partial collapse 
of the Charlie side of the roof, probably um, a good quarter of it. And there was no domino effect that didn't didn't eat the crew up. The crew immediately got on the radio, did emergency traffic and uh, notified command to, to pull everybody out and that they were going to have to go defensive now because there has already been a collapse to the roof um, area and and they got off the roof. So um, there is no better place for the crew, for the truck crew in and being able to identify what is the progress of the fire and what is happening to the integrity of the building than on the roof. Um, so that's just, that's my point with that. I think, uh, you know, I, I, it's the one part of blue card that I do like, and that is that they, when they have a, a, a commercial business, they want to put the ladder truck to the roof to give us a report of what it looks like and, and what's going on. And the way that we can identify if it's a panelized roof that we already discussed is once we get up there and we know that we have uh, a fire in this building, an inspection cut's going to tell us what type of construction we're doing, we're dealing with. And, uh, and our soundings going to tell us what's the integrity of the building, the roof particular. And then if it turns out that the, that the, we're having a failed roof, then we're going to get off and we're going to pull everybody out of the building and go to a different, uh, strategy. All right. Very good. So we had a question from Palmer record and the question was very simply arched roofs. Why not? So. I wasn't going to dive into tactics just yet, but uh, Robbie was just talking about arch roofs. So this has the potential to go for a minute. But uh, there is a lot of discussion about arch roofs in the fire service. Many times all arch roofs are lumped into a single category called bowstring. And we're told um, in many places that bowstrings or arch roofs are extremely dangerous. So why would we want to or not want to operate on an arched roof? And is this safe or unsafe? Don't everybody answer at once. Don't all go at once. <laughs> the reason to go on our roofs is the same to go on any roof. Which is? Well, I mean, first off is information. The first and most important thing you can do on the roof is like Robbie was saying, is to be up there to give those eyes in the sky that you can't get from the ground to be able to size up the building and the fire and what's going on and progress and failure, all those things. If you never get to cut, you still get all of that stuff. Uh, if you're, if you're considering putting people underneath an arched roof or a commercial roof in particular, and you don't have somebody on top of it to evaluate how it's doing, I've, I've feel like that's a shortcoming somewhere on that fire. Okay. I like that. So that's a really good start. Good. James. Now I would, I would agree with that totally. Um, Cause when you actually look at, look at most, most arch roofs, look at the volume of space. That's either going to be in the actual occupied space or in that void space or the attic space um, for you to cut and make, a difference, say, for just uh, visibility, um, just the amount of work that it takes to cut that and then the amount of smoke and um, and products of combustion that are in those spaces that would need to be cleared would be in, like an incredible amount. Um, so I think that a lot of times when we're talking about going up on these roofs, I would agree with Will that the, 
the primary the primary uh, focus would be um, knowing what's going on with the roof and what's going on with the structural stability of it, as opposed to um, getting up there and uh, and cutting so that you're going to make a big difference in what's going on inside. I'm not saying you shouldn't cut it, or but I'm saying that. Like for me, that would be I, I would get more out of the intel of what's going on with the roof by being up there than than benefit of of cutting in a space like that. So you have to have a pretty considerable fire in that space um, and hopefully be having a handle on it with water on it before you're, you know it's all going to make a big difference. Okay, so we've talked about why we might want to go on an arch roof. Now, what allows us to be safe on an arch roof? Sounding is probably, well, one, the inspection cut to understand what we're dealing with, two, sounding and, and personnel. I mean, there's, to, to James's point about being able to cut enough space to actually make a difference in that large open space, this is why we can go and watch videos of LA City, LAFD, work these roofs because most departments are not able to get not able to get enough personnel to fight the fire, let alone to put enough personnel on the roof to to have a significant impact. And and to again to James's point is like the intel is incredible. So even if we do send a crew up there just to gather the intel on the progress of the fire, that is helping out immensely. I mean, ultimately, and this is for all of our engine. Uh, buddies out there is water is going to put this fire out, not the ventilation of this roof. Okay. But, um, but when you look at like LA, I mean, I just, I text Walter, um, before we were getting on the show. Cause I, I figured we were going to be talking something about this and, and the, and, and I said, Hey, how many, how many guys, how many guys are we putting up, uh, on the, on the roof for, uh, for their operation? And it's, and he basically is like, it's, it's basically 10 to 14 14 firefighters that are working that roof, they can cut a shitload of space with that amount of crews up there. Most of us have three on our ladder truck. I'll even give you an, a, a staff ladder company of four. Four, four firefighters up there on the roof are going to have a hard time on this arch roof with the amount of space. But um, our operations, safe operations is one, get there, be able to identify it quickly and be able to see where the progress is going. And if you do have the 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 expertise and you do have the equipment, that, that means you gotta have the right tools. Um, so real saws and real hooks and stuff like that. If you have the right tools, the experience and everything, and the right trained personnel, you can have a significant impact if if you're offensive on that roof. All right, so we agree that uh, arch roofs need well, I shouldn't say need the Artros, uh fires on Archer buildings can benefit from fire crews on top, uh, if nothing else, for intelligence gathering, and uh, that it is possible to be safe up there. Is, is that correct? Yeah. One yes. thing I would add to that is I think it's important to understand, um, be able to, to be able to understand the buildings that are in your districts or in your areas. As well, like I'll give the example, um, I've taught at the Fresno Fire Symposium for multiple years now, and they have a ton of arch roofs in their area. And you walk through some of those buildings and they are, you can find um, defects or failures in a ton of those, um, in a ton of those big arch trusses um, 
So just something to be aware of knowing, you know, your area, knowing how well the building's maintained, those sorts of things. Yeah, I guess just from my perspective, like saying that that it, it's possible to be safe on an arched roof and, and that we don't need to take a default position of fear doesn't mean that it's a good idea for every crew everywhere in America to be on an arched roof. Oh, or Canada. Sorry, James. <laughs> Although, may, I don't know, maybe all the Canadians got it. Uh, it's, or- it, it takes, you know, back to our previous conversation about the convergence of tactics and, and construction. For many crews, like like uh, Fisher was saying down in SoCal, this is a bread and butter fire for them. They absolutely understand the, the convergence of, of tactics and construction. Um, for a lot of us, it's it's that 10%. So, so not everyone is actually going to like have the requisite skills and knowledge to safely operate up there. Well, that would, I mean, that's, and we're talking about bread and butter. I mean, our bread and butter for the most part is lightweight construction. And you want to talk about that, that causes some people to just really shit themselves over. Can't believe that uh, crews are going on the, on the roof of a lightweight constructed building. And, um, and I, and I think it goes back to, if you know your area, you've trained well, you've got the right equipment, and you're practiced in it, you you should be able to have pretty safe operations. And and I think that uh, from the standpoint of solid sounding, understanding the roof construction that you're on, be it that if it's pitched, you already have a you already know what type of construction it is versus flat. You need to do an inspection cut. You need to identify what type of roof you're on, and then uh, your sounding is is your safety. Uh, as you're working and uh, you know not it's not for everybody it's not for everybody and and we had the chance when we were at FDIC and we did a um, um, a, a blog talk show with uh, Danny Sheridan from uh, from FDNY and, and he was we had a great discussion with some LA County guys and um, and him on you know these operations because to, to to Danny's credit, he's like, hey, you know, I'm from FDNY. We just don't do roof operations the way that you guys do. So I want to talk to guys that are doing this. And we had a great show on that. And um, and we had lunch with Danny afterwards. And it was great conversation as well. And he's just he's learning about, you know what? We don't all do it the same. Yep, that's good stuff. Let's move on to uh, to one more building construction question. And this is a training question as well, again, from Up Valley North Enders. What are some training ideas to engage those who don't have a construction background who you might be working with? Send them to James's class in uh, at the work conference or the journeyman conference or any other conference that he goes to where you get to actually build stuff. Yeah, building, I would. But building building stuff would be one, one way to engage people that don't have. Give them the background that they that they lack. First, first thing I would recommend is just walking buildings that are under construction because that's going to be your first, first level of that and try and get people to understand it that way. But second, I would say definitely if you can, if you can have the opportunity like in an academy or in some kind of training to build a small structure or um, like that, I would definitely, um, I would definitely give that, um, that would be a great option for them. Getting hands on the tools in any aspect of this profession is is kind of how firefighters learn for the most part. So um, I would definitely advocate for that. 
Okay. So from an academy setting or if you're in some sort of training leadership uh, or have the ability to attend a class like James's where you actually do build, that's a, that's, that's a primary way to learn. Uh, but if you were, say, a junior guy on a crew or you know, you just you had a crew and you don't get to determine exactly how your training goes, what's a way to, to spark some conversation? Or educate the guys because I mean no one wants to just be talked to right and mm-hmm. and if you're just sitting around the kitchen table and say you guys need to learn this um, you know that that's not necessarily the best way to like help the people you're working with uh, to learn so what have you guys f- found to be effective when it comes to uh, like walking buildings is a good example James what are you doing when you're walking buildings well, and, and I think one thing that's very important when you're walking buildings is to keep it relevant to what we're doing. Because like you can walk a building and look at all this stuff that really doesn't matter to us. Um, like we like we get really into the weeds with building construction, but there are lots of aspects of building code and building construction that the average firefighter does not need to know. There's things that don't impact us. We don't need to understand the blocking that goes in behind um, in a kitchen for to hang the cabinets, or we don't need to understand the blocking that goes in a bathroom where you're going to hang your toilet paper roll. There's certain things like that that are that are going to you know parts of building code or parts of common building practice that firefighters don't need to understand. So I think the important thing is keeping it relevant to to things that we're going to be doing and things that are going to directly impact our operations when we're when we're at a fire. So I think that helps to narrow the scope of things. So it's not as overwhelming for people. So it's like, okay, let's, let's look at um, main things is let's look at structural stability and let's look at travel of fire. Those sorts of, those things are two things that you can go when a building's framed, even to the lockup stage where drywall's not in. And you can discuss those two things, which are really important for us. And it's pretty easy to grasp. So I think it's keeping it in kind of bite-sized things that are relevant to what we do. I would add that, um, in, and I know sprinkler systems are more or suppression systems and are more part of maybe prevention style, but it is part of the construction. I, w- I would add that understanding what buildings require sprinkler systems, what spacing, uh, um, the actual square footage before a sprinkler is required in, in a commercial, you know, because the type of the type of occupancy that it's being built for um, will require a sprinkler system no matter, basically no matter what size versus if it's being used for storage or something else, then they can build it so, so uh, they can build it so big without a sprinkler system in it. Um, And then in your, you know, me in your own jurisdiction, you could have uh, adoptions to the sprinkler code that all buildings that are commercial have sprinkler systems. So being able to get out and understanding how a um, how a suppression system or something like that impacts the building itself and when we're going to see them when we're not, I would say is important to also cover with the crews. One thing I just want to add to that um, is when we're talking about sprinkler systems, I think one of the biggest things for uh, for firefighters to understand is really the breakdown of the difference between an NFPA 13 system and an NFPA 13R system. Uh, so just for those that might not be familiar with it, um, a 13R, which is like the residential system, um, doesn't require there to be any sprinklers in any of the void spaces, um, exterior decks, um, things like that, where a full 13 system requires sprinklers in the 
void spaces, on decks, um, any anywhere that's concealed, basically. Um, so that's one of the big things to um, that's contributed to a lot of the big multifamily fires. I know that in British Columbia now, anything over four stories has to be a full 13 system with all the void spaces sprinklered. So I think that's one thing to that's good for guys to understand is um, kind of the difference with that. Hey, William, and so that I understand this correctly, a 13R just is more for allow for occupants to occupants to escape, whereas the 13 system is to suppress it so that the building is protected. Uh, that's a James question, not a William question. Oh, did I say William? <laughs> you did. Oh, well, you guys, you guys look alike. One's Canadian, really? the other the other one drinks Coca Cola in the South. <laughs> no, um, I'm I, I'm I'm gonna I'm sorry, I'm gonna say that to James. No, that do I not understand correctly that R13 or 13R is for the occupants to be able to escape, and that the 13 is to protect the building. Yeah, I, I would say that um, that's a fair assessment. And all sprinkler systems, though, are not designed to actually extinguish the fire; they're just to hold them in check. Um, but yes, the the additional um, sprinkler systems in the void spaces are more for, you know, keeping it, keeping it in wraps until we can get there and, and take care of it. But that's the big thing about sprinkler systems in general that people, um, oh yeah, sprinkler system, we don't have anything to worry about. It's like, no, sprinkler system can, you know, they, it doesn't knock down the fire completely. Um, one of the times that I, um, I got transported to the hospital, um, from a fire was, was a sprinkler fire. Um, but you run into cold smoke issues. You run into lots of things that um, that can can cause us issues as well. But sprinkler systems are just to give people time to get out and hopefully uh, keep the fire back enough for us to get there and be able to make a difference. Okay, sounds good. Uh, something I'll add in just a little bit, something that I found to spark conversation on existing buildings, not buildings under construction, is just to start asking questions. So a common one. For me, on a, on a commercial building, and I got this from from a guy that I work for, is just like ceiling or no ceiling, as he walked past, and, and now everyone starts to get thinking like, if you had to guess what uh, what the roof system is, like, what do you think on on residential buildings, especially two stories, where are the stairs, uh, these kind of things usually spark conversation. They 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 go far beyond the, the 15 second answer. Um, and then looking at different ages of buildings helps a lot with that. Um, with, with where are the stairs or what would you expect on the Charlie side? Um, that kind of stuff. So just asking, asking questions and you don't have to know the answer. That's the great thing. Like as long as you're curious, uh, it'll spark some conversation. Hopefully you can get in there and check it out. That's, that's a really good point about, um, stairs and things like that. You're you're not asking them to tell you how it was assembled. You're telling them you're asking them how how is the assembly oriented, and that pertains to what we do a little bit more necessarily to than you know how did how did they frame this window? Did they use jack studs? Did, you know what? That's more technical. Uh, whereas what you're talking about is much more basic and easier to get into, and more directly applicable to how we stretch, how we search, and all of the other things that we do on the fire ground. I like that very much. And you can do that on anything. You can do it on med calls. You can do it when you go to the store, um, asking where the stairs are, where the bedrooms are, point to a window and say, what, what does that window go to? That's still kind of building construction because the it's a building 
it was built that way for the occupants and for function. And so it leads further down that rabbit hole of how did they build it this way? Later on, as you start building that foundation, uh, you get more into that. But I, I like that, Stephen. Yeah, as much as I love the aesthetic value of uh, checking out roof systems and I love um, rough work, building layouts are very much a part of building construction and uh, very applicable to every part of the job from command to fire attack, search, uh, ventilation, all that stuff. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. We do, we do forget that. We do get caught up in the, uh, the more technical stuff and forget the very basic part of layout and floor plan. Mm-hmm. All right. I got a question from a guy named Ken Bradley on Instagram. And he says that in his first view, 95% of the structures are true heavy timber, which first of all, that's crazy. I would like to know where that is. Cause that's pretty cool. Advice yes. or concerns for vertical ventilation ops. He says the national historic society maintains and improves construction for them, but they've been gutted countless times. Essentially, only the frame, the exterior is original. So let me reframe this question because it's it's a little bit big. But on these, in this case, on heavy timber buildings that have been renovated multiple times, what are our tactical implications there? Is it any different than if it, if it hasn't been renovated? Well, well it depends. Ultimately, it. Go ahead, James. No, you go. Yeah, how how we go about venting may differ because the materials may be different based on whether it was the original construction or something different. How we get started is the same. It's still size up, inspection cut, sounding, you know, still using skirts. Uh, that's universal. But what you end up doing if it ends up being tongue and groove, you know, three by six planks with uh, some sort of purlin or beam supporting them every 8 to 16 feet, that's different than if it's uh, a newly constructed uh, lightweight truss system that got installed there or something different. You know, that How we get started is the same, though. Yeah, I guess I would just chime in for a sec. A lot of the buildings in my area that are old have this the same phenomenon. They're generally not heavy timber. They're generally ordinary construction, but um, almost always have been have been gutted, renovated, you know, multiple times since the turn of the century. So, um, especially if this thing is on the the National Register for Historic Places, like these these renovations are being done in the right way. Like the, they're having the proper code inspections. Um, so I, I would feel generally better about the structural stability of a place regardless of its current orientation just the fact that like if that thing is on the register like like it's been done the right way and it's probably even if some of the mass has been taken out of that building even if some of the compartmentation has been taken out of that building structurally speaking like i'm feeling pretty good about it well, that's a big. That's one of the big things with heavy timber is it typically relies on the frame and it doesn't rely on that compartmentalization of the inside to for stability. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's my own bias veering from veering away from the original question of heavy timber into into ordinary. But th- that's a very good point about heavy timber. In fact, 
these renovations, if, if, if what Ken's talking about is truly heavy timber, has probably compartmented it more. Mm-hmm. You also, depending on what they're doing, um, if, if they've been gutted and renovated back to uh, original period stuff or been completely revamped and turned into something, that what, what is the, the occupancy? Is the occupancy the original uh, factory or mill or whatever was in it? Or is it now something totally different? Have it been turned into lofts and they've put concrete floors where there used to be uh, all heavy plank? Things like that, and if it is original or parts of it original, what kind of kind of state of repair are they in? That would be one of my concerns. Go into the roof of anything that's older, period, but especially heavy timber, because it is like like James said, dependent on the size of the, the and the frame of the structural members. If they haven't been maintained, um, they're supporting a lot of space and a lot of area off of single large members. So when one of them lets go. You lose more in a local failure than you would in other construction types. Asked and answered. Somebody say yes, please. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is uh, one that I think we've talked about internally. I know I've had the discussion at least with Fisher. Uh, what are some considerations for working on tile roofs? Well, I think the number one thing is that you can't sound through the tile. That's one of the big things. So you have to remove that tile in order to get a true um, diagnosis of the of the material or the roof system below it. I think a lot of departments, when they see tile or some type of tile style or lightweight concrete um, tiles that they just automatically just it almost be like our panel or our solar panel questions they automatically like we're not going to the roof because it's too dangerous and um, there's a lot of weight up there. But the, there's a lot of departments that are very aggressive with their roof operations and and they're very successful on on uh, tiled style roofs and, and um, they can be worked. But again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. You've got to have. The right tools you got to have the right uh, uh experience and training and uh and you're you're relatively safe operating on the roof so now it's just a matter of what approach do you want to go with is it break and rake or is it um unstack and move so let's talk about what that is like what what's the difference we would call that on my job break and rake or pull and stack so what do you what are those and then what what do you prefer rob yeah, this, I know. Um, I know my buddy, who's a captain on a neighboring truck company. I know he's probably going to be listening to this show, and we've had this this debate. And uh, um, most, I mean, most of the most of the individuals I've talked to that are really good at this. They they go with more of a break and rake style, which means that you get into position where you're going to be doing your operation. You're going to use your trash hook. You're going to break those tiles, and you're going to move them out of the way. Um, so that you can get to the decking and be able to uh, make your your cut. Um, but like with anything, any operation, there is there is a um, there is a, a good and a bad with it. So the good is that this is fairly quickly can quickly be done. The bad is now you've got all this broken tile that you got to manage, and so while you're on the roof, you you have to work around it. It could be uh, it could be a hazard for the crews that are on the roof. It could be a hazard for the crews that are below you. 
I'm not so worried about the crews below me because it's pretty easy just to let crews know that we're venting on the Charlie side of the slope. Stay away from the Charlie side because there's going to be uh, debris coming down. But um, so that's one approach. And the other approach would be to just pull it with your hands and and they come off real easily. I mean, they're just there's just one nail that's holding them and a lot of them. Not all of them are nailed down. So you can just start pulling those up, get the space that you need, uh, stack them to one side and make the cut. You know, I've our approach has been uh, since I was taking classes, it's been the break and rake approach. So that's the one that I'm most comfortable with. And uh, I think talking to uh, Karg, uh, who is the captain over in the neighboring department, his approach has always been to pull them. And uh, maybe what we would need to do is see how quick it works. But those are the two approaches when it comes to tile, when it comes down to it, really. I think that um, if I were to do the pull method and things are just not going so well, then it's a break method. We'd just break and rake it. Probably not a lot of tile in Vancouver. Is that something you guys see a lot? Uh, yeah, I would say we got uh, 25% of our residential, 20% is probably tile. Oh, fair bit, that's actually. a lot. But I would say it's all all 1980s. Mm. It's kind of anything in that range. Um, so we actually have quite a bit of it. So they were they were built with tile in mind. They it wasn't added later. No, and that's not something you would. Uh, we don't see it in our newer homes, or we don't see any of the renovations either. So it's that. So uh, yeah, the period I, specific. The reason I ask is a lot. Of, a lot of people think, oh, it's a lot of weight. But typically, when homes are built with tile in mind, they're they're framed differently to handle the extra weight of that that roofing material. So yeah, and, and most m- yeah, most of the time what we see is just like typical, like you'll see 16 on center, conventionally framed with you know not that long of span with the rafters, and then uh, a lot of times you will see purlins and like our you know that definition of purlin at the mid span of the rafters, lots of times just to help carry some of that weight. Wow, that's interesting. So you mentioned your consideration. Uh, you came on first and said that the soundings in consideration. Rob talked about, you know, uh, break and rake versus pull and stack. What would you do typically, or what would be expected on your crew? And we're not doing a lot of roof ops um, okay. here in that in those kind of places, but definitely, um, de- definitely getting rid of the tile so you can sound mm-hmm. it is um, would be my main consideration. However, you do that. So I've only been on one uh, job that was vertically vented that had a tile roof, and I was on the engine. Uh, but we did go up uh, the next day to take some pictures for the investigator, and um, that that crap is like ice, man. When when there are shards of of tile on tile, uh, that that stuff's pretty nasty. So my experience from that, which is which is very limited, is is that I would. So we went ahead and started you know, playing with, with this roof a little bit in a limited area and started, you know, a little bit of break and rake, a little bit of pull and stack. And if you could break and rake and send all that stuff down into a valley or really make sure you're getting it really clean, then I'd be all right with that. But man, like I, I don't have a fear of heights. I don't have anything like that, but I was, I was as, as nervous as I've ever been on a roof, just doing, just taking pictures for the investigator on that tower roof. So pull and stack would, would definitely be what I'm going to, but that's, probably a lack of experience on my part. Yeah. I, I, um, like I, like I was saying is we've done some and, uh, it's been, been, uh, break and rake, but, 
Um, I, I would say what we need to talk is talk to those departments that uh, do a lot of tile work. Again, going down in SoCal, down in the south, and and find out uh, you know what works for them. They're the ones that are doing it more often, and and they can tell you how they can work around it. Um, but those are those are the basic two methods that are used, and um, there's positives and negatives on both of them. We have, I'll tell you, we have not that this is tile, but we have a commercial uh, flat roof that has uh, river rock on it. And I'm not talking pea gravel. You know, I'm talking like like true freaking rocks. And, uh, you know, when you take a crew up there, like this is walking buildings and teaching, you take a crew up there and they're going, what the, are you kidding me? And it is a type of, a type of covering on, on roofing that, uh, that is, you know, obviously it's designed in the, into the, the, the structure, but, um, we know that we have to take, uh, these, you know, big old flat shovels that go up there to, to move this stuff because it's, it's a couple inches thick and it's a, it's a lot of weight, but if we were going to do anything on the roof, we'd have to get rid of it. So it's not something you normally see around here, but, um, it is definitely a, another type of covering that would be a whole nother operation. Hey, so real quick on the on the river rock, maybe this will go somewhere, maybe it won't. Um, why does that happen? We have those in our area as well. Like, what's the deal with that? Why why are they putting freaking you know like six inch round on top of a roof on these commercial buildings? Well, I mean, I, I'm I'll turn it over to James here in a second, but I asked about that to a to a construction. You know, I was like, well, how is this? And I and I think it has to do with the design of the. The, the design of the building and um, the contractor that's doing it. So the design of the building was done from the south. So I guess down in where there's a lot of heat, they'll use rock. They'll use rock to cover the the roof and to dissipate the heat. So it's like, well, this is just something that our con, our our uh, construction firm does. We do it down in you know New Mexico, whatever it is, and they're up in Washington building it. So they just use the same style of construction that they're that they're using in the South that they're going to, you know, be up here in Washington doing. Now they obviously have to take in consideration our, our rain and, and snow loads, but they do. And it's just, it's just what they do. So that's, that's what we were told because hey, I'm hey, thinking, I, I don't know why we would do it. Are you just talking gravel on the top? No, I'm talking rock, like rock. Huh? Yeah. I, I don't have any experience with that at all. Cause you, we see gravel all the time and that's just to keep the sun off the roofing material. So it doesn't degrade, but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the insulation value of our value of having rock there for would be. Well, that's what the R stands for is rock. Rock, <laughs> rock value. The rock value. <laughs> I would say that it's, it's to attract Brian Olson, but they're not nearly big enough. No, not at all. Well, I, I tell you what, I'll take some pictures of it, and we can make that uh, a discussion point maybe later on, in um, you know, on on one of our things. But I'll show you, and you'll be going, "What the hell? Why would you put that on the roof?" Interesting. We've been rolling for a while, guys. I'm glad you're editing all of this. Yeah, me too. So um, <laughs> I actually hey, you're on shift now. I don't want to hear any complaints. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so I'm going to – I wouldn't mind rapping for a little longer, but I just got a text. Uh, my kid broke his thumb last week or earlier, oh. I guess Friday, and uh, they're at the dock, the ortho right now, and, and he's got to have surgery. So they're headed back, and I know I'm going to have a, a kid to deal with. So so let's uh, 
we're going to have to wrap if you don't mind. Um, for sure. So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's do a little bit of closing. So let's talk about what you guys are doing to, uh, further your education or where you're going to be teaching. So, um, we'll start down South. Will, what's on your agenda? What are you going to be learning or who are you going to be teaching? Uh, I will be attending the water on the fire conference in August and then, uh, Robbie and I will both be teaching at Wichita Hot in September. We'll be doing a uh, a roof construct a roof deconstruction class. It's a vertical vent class called Coast to Coast uh, Rooftop Workshop, and we've got a bunch of guys from all over, from LA City, from the Pacific Northwest, uh, from the East Coast. We got Arthur Ashley and uh, Jason Joanitas coming, so uh, it's going to be a good time. That sounds great. I wish I could make it. Uh, so Rob, besides, besides that, what are you up to? Uh, I'm too going to be at uh, water on the fire. Thanks, uh, Sven Skivink for uh, giving me his registration. And, uh, let's see, I'm going to be doing some peer support stuff, which is, uh, kind of the, the hug and love thing. Uh, I'm going to be down in San Antonio for the Rosecrans conference, uh, learning. I'm going to be down in, uh, Texas, for um oh man i can't remember the name of it. it's uh, uh faith, faith family, family fire. faith family fire so my wife and i are going to go down there um we were just at command officer boot camp uh last month and so we had a really good time with kurt jessica and everybody and now that's going to be extended uh, i think uh, olson's going to be there uh trust trail is going to be there so it's going to be a good time so I'll, I'll be there for learning um jealous of that Let's see what else. Uh, we've got some Brothers in Battle stuff that's going on that I'll be out uh, teaching. Uh, it is going to be a busy fall. You know, Brothers in Battle, we take off July and August. And so there's a little bit of education on my part learning. But uh, then once we hit it back up in September, I'm going to be flying back and forth and doing a lot of uh, instructing, learning and uh, traveling. So Sounds fun. James Johnson puts on the agenda. Uh, what do I have coming up? I got, uh, I'm doing the work conference in Austin. Um, and that's in October. Uh, I'm going to be going down and visiting Robbie in September to do a class, uh, for the fools there, which I'm looking forward to. Um, and Ben will be coming out for that as well. So that'll be, uh, great. Uh, what else? I have the work conference doing a hands-on class there. Could be the Minnesota Fire Chiefs is in October as well. Fresno Fire Symposium in November. Uh, a little bit here and there. <laughs> a little bit of stuff. So, uh, yeah, keeping busy. Uh, one cool thing I just did is I just got back a few days ago from Indiana. We had the biggest FEMA urban search and rescue exercise in the history of the organization occurred out there, which was absolutely unreal. Like that facility like engineered collapsed buildings as far as the eye can see um it was really cool really challenging scenarios um all of our transportation was all done in black hawk and chinook helicopters from the tennessee national guard so it was uh it was badass yeah it was pretty cool so a lot of our guys had never been in a helicopter before and their first ride was in a black hawk or a chinook so it was pretty cool i I got a question how is the canadian government part of fema or how are you a part of all of this so that's kind of interesting we um 
basically we operate under um, the international regulations, which is INSEROG, which is what everybody except for the United States does. And then the United States operates as FEMA. Uh, so when FEMA was doing this big exercise, they said, if we ever, if we ever needed the Canadian teams to help augment our system, there was no system in place for doing that. Um, so, so that's kind of why there was a team from Australia there as well, and five of the Canadian teams. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's cool being down there too. I ran into Jake Hoffman from Toledo uh, at the exercise. So it was kind of cool just to see, you know, guys from the fire world from all across the country. So, man, that sounds fantastic. What about you, well, Stephen? What do you have coming up? No, nah, that's a horrible question. <laughs> I'm actually, uh, I'm taking, I'm in a little bit of a. A down period, a little bit of a little bit of respite. Just came out of the training division, and uh, I'm back online in a new position. So uh, I'm an engine driver now. So I'm actually on probation for the next six months, which involves several tests. So I'll just be uh, working on my probation, and also have a probationary firefighter um, who's going to be going through through his stuff. So I'll just kind of be internally focused. Um, probably do some some teaching for our, our regional stuff in October and November. I, I don't know. I may I may make it out to Mile High Conference to uh, to work with uh, the Brothers in Battle class there. So see if I can can get that uh, that September away. But other than that, at least until January, uh, I'm kind of internally focused, and uh, we'll see after that. Um, I've done a lot of teaching over the last couple of years, and and it might be a time to to be a student for for a little bit and uh, set aside some teaching and 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 do some more learning. So kind of trying to to figure all that out. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks for your time. I'm uh, really excited to get this out. Anything you guys got to wrap up? It's, uh, as always, it's great talking with you brothers. And I consider you guys family. And I could do this every single day for an hour chat. And uh, we wouldn't have to accomplish anything. So I enjoy our time <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah, we should we should do this more frequently. It's been a long time since the last one. Mm-hmm. And these, whatever we're together, these com- exact conversations happen. This, we just happen to be recording it today. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. I appreciate you as always. I appreciate your influence on my life and my career. And uh, be well until I see you again. Awesome. Take care, guys. See you guys. Take care. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better and let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market, specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do.